Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. We got six opinions Thursday, May 18th. Yikes. Leaving 33 more opinions to go. Later in the podcast, we're going to be joined by Latham and Watkins partner Roman Martinez to talk about Justice Jackson's first term of arguments on the high court bench. Data from friend of the podcast, Adam Feldman, over at Empirical SCOTUS notes that she talked more than any other justice's term by a lot, Lydia, a lot. Yeah, I uh, I, I thought that might be the case. <laughs> she was um, very active on the bench. But first, we're going to talk about three of the cases that the justices decided this week, starting off with the big IP case, uh, Andy Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith. Kimberly, you and Greg did a deep dive episode into this case, but can you remind listeners, you know, what the issue is here? Sure. So the Warhol case involves a famous work by the late artist, uh, which is known as Orange Prince. And as Warhol is famous for, the print is a derivative of another artist's work, well-known photographer Lynn Goldsmith. Now, eventually, Goldsmith and the Warhol Foundation became um, involved in litigation over whether Orange Prince infringed on her copyright or whether the work was instead uh, fair use. And for our purposes, that's a doctrine that allows the limited use of a work without the artist's permission. So the appellate court sided with Goldsmith, saying that the fair use doctrine did not apply here. And in a 7-2 to decision, the Supreme Court agreed. So um, a note here that listeners should go ahead and take a look at the case itself because it's got a lot of great illustrations, both of these works and many, many others. But of course, they're all fair use, Lydia. So (laughs) no litigation over that. Yeah, we usually don't see uh, Supreme Court opinions with pretty pictures in them, but we got a lot this time. And color, too. Yeah, color. The court's really uh, coming into the 20th century. It's about time. (laughs) So, Kimberly, why did the majority say that the fair use defense, you know, wasn't available to the Warhol Foundation here? Okay, so let's step back a little bit. Um, There are four factors that courts look at to determine whether the use of a work is fair use and um, thus not an infringement of copyright. This case here turns on just one of those factors, and that is what's the purpose and character of the use, and importantly, whether or not it's used for commercial purposes or something else like reporting or for educational purposes. So the majority was written by Justice Sotomayor, and she said that courts have tended to put too much weight um, in weighing this factor on whether or not a work is, quote, transformative, and that it often has proved to be dispositive. But she said that shouldn't be the only consideration, and instead courts should look at the work's purpose and consider whether or not it's commercial in nature. And and so basically, Justice Sotomayor said that courts should not just consider the nature of the work, but also consider, you know, what is it being used for? So as you just mentioned, you know, the court here found that the use of orange prints was commercial in nature. Why did that happen? What did the court look at? So the court noted that both uh, the use of orange prints and Goldsmith's original photo were used for substantially the the same thing. That is, they were used in magazine articles about the late musician. So the court further said that in general, that when the use of a work is substantially the same as the original and that use is commercial, that the purpose is probably going to be the deciding factor. So, you know, the majority really made clear that courts shouldn't be looking just at sort of the trend transformative nature of the work, but they have to put a lot of weight on, you know, what are we actually using this for? 
So, Lydia, we saw an interesting divide in the Warhol case. I mentioned it was seven to two. Um, Who was at odds in this one? Uh, That's right. As you mentioned, you know, earlier, we got the court's majority decision here from uh, Justice Sotomayor. And actually, uh, the dissent was penned by Justice Elena Kagan, and she was joined in that by the chief justice. Classic breakdown. Yeah, really unusual. And, um, you know, in their writings, both took shots at one another. Now, it's not uncommon, as you know, for the justices to exchange some sharp rhetoric when they disagree on the outcome of a case. But it is surprising when it happens between justices who are typically on the same side, Mm -hmm. um, especially two justices on the court's liberal wing. Are there other examples where Justice Kagan has sort of penned these sharp dissents in the past? Yeah. So it seems like Justice Kagan is making a bit of a name for herself as the justice who has a sharp pen. Um, But it's usually directed at her more conservative colleagues. Uh, Poor Justice Brett Kavanaugh (laughs) has actually been the target lately. And um, it hasn't just been in dissents. Um, In a case called Borden versus United States, um, which was a 2021 uh, dispute over gun sentencing laws, uh, Justice Kagan wrote in the majority ruling, that Kavanaugh's dissent was uh, a magic show. She kind of likened it to a magic show. Uh, she said that he was putting the rabbit in the hat to uphold a longer sentence for a criminal defendant. And presto, um, I think that was one of the first uses of the term presto in a Supreme Court opinion. Maybe not the last. Um, this sounds a little familiar, though. Uh, sounds a lot like uh, the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Is she sort of following in his footsteps? I mean... Who can forget the bag over the head in the same-sex marriage cases? Brutal. Yeah. Justice Scalia had some fiery uh, dissents, many of which were directed at Justice Anthony Kennedy. (laughs) Um, But one legal scholar that I spoke to said that, you know, Justice Kagan is displaying the same intellectual spirit that Justice Scalia uh, had. You know, another legal scholar I talked to said that her dissent in the Warhol case attempts to emulate Justice Scalia's rhetoric here. You know, Justice Scalia was really the role model for this type of writing, and the justices could just let their opinions speak for themselves, you know, without kind of taking shots at their adversaries. But University of Virginia law professor uh, Richard Ray said that this is really a triumph of Scalia's mm. uh, rhetoric approach. And um, but he says that the justices may be overdoing it a little uh, bit. Maybe, maybe, maybe just a little bit. Maybe a little. <laughs> All right. Um, Should we move on to the next case, Lydia? Yeah. uh, Let's talk about another pair of cases. Uh, These involve social media companies. So what's going on in the Twitter uh, v. Tomna and the Gonzalez versus Google case? Right. So these were both big wins for social media companies in general. And the plaintiffs in the cases sued various social media platforms, saying that the companies hosted and sometimes even recommended ISIS material on their platform. And they want these social media companies to be held financially liable for attacks on their loved ones abroad. The Google case really had many in the tech industry Mm. kind of scared over what's known as Section 230. Remind our listeners, you know, what that is. So Section 230 is a law that has been interpreted very broadly by courts. And basically, it's a shield to social media platforms and others from liability for what's known as third-party content. And that is content that is posted by individuals other than the social media sites. So Section 230 and its protections have largely been credited with, um, you know, creating the Internet as we know it and allowing it to flourish. So for good or bad, I guess. 
Yeah, but the court didn't actually decide the scope of Section 230, right? Like, so what did they do instead? Womp, womp, womp. Um, <laughs> so it was pretty clear at oral arguments that there was a possible off-ramp for the justices to not have to weigh into this really sort of fraught issue. And that's what they did. Um, the plaintiffs here brought their... Uh, brought their case under a statute that provides for aiding and abetting liability. And the court said, look, there's just not enough of a close connection between posting ISIS material on their websites and then the attacks to allow for that kind of liability. And so they were able to sidestep the 230 issue altogether because, of course, if you can't be liable in general, it doesn't matter if you have any kind of shield or defense that, you know, Section 230 might give you. So not the blockbuster decision that will change the Internet as we know it that some people expected then. Right. So we'll just leave that for another day and another term. (laughs) Can't wait. (laughs) And so we saw in the opinion um, there was some concern that if Google and Twitter could be liable in these cases, that they would be liable really for any kind of attacks and terrorist attacks that happened abroad. And so I think it's sort of a sigh of relief for people who were were watching this case and sort of very concerned um, that this could really change the nature of the internet, um, either by sort of making it this anything goes hellscape, um, you know, where they just let everything on their platforms or going the other opposite extreme to where, you know, they really have to restrict what, what can be seen. So everyone breathe in, breathe out. Until next term. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. So those are the most notable cases that the court decided on May 18th. There were three others. But we're going to turn now to our guest to chat about the newest justice, Justice Jackson. So Latham and Watkins' Roman Martinez is a frequent face at the Supreme Court, having argued 12 cases in front of the justices, including two this term in front of the newest justice, Justice Jackson. So our friend of the podcast, Adam Feldman, crunched the numbers over at Empirical SCOTUS, and he said that the junior justice set a new ceiling. She averaged 1,600-plus words per argument, which was 600 words more than the next closest justice. Does that surprise you, sort of, given her her background, or what do, what do you make of that? So, uh, thanks, Kimberly. Yeah, so I was uh, I was a little bit surprised in in her willingness to to be as um, outspoken at argument and to talk as much as she did. But obviously, you know, she's made a lot of great contributions, and the arguments have gotten a lot longer. So I think that probably explains a lot of it. I, I do think it's an interesting relative number that she's sort of around fifty percent more words than than the next next closest justice. I wouldn't have had that on my bingo card. Yeah. I mean, typically we see sort of the justices when they were when they join the court, they sort of sit back, you know, ease into the role. But that definitely didn't seem to be Justice Jackson's M.O. I mean, right off the bat, I remember um, in her voting rights case, she was very active. Um, Did that case stand out to you, too? Yeah, I think it did. And, and, you know, really that first sitting was uh, really hit. I hit hard that there was definitely a new a new face, a new member of the court. She spoke, I think, twice as many words as any of the other sitting justices in her first in the in their first, you know, eight cases. And so I thought that was pretty significant. You know, I do think that one possible explanation or a factor that might shed light on this is the fact that she was a district court judge Mm -hmm. for the great majority of her judicial career. She was on the, the D.C. Circuit, but not very long. Uh, I actually had, uh, my firm had a case in front of her and I went and watched one of uh, an argument in front of her and I was impressed at the time um, by how active she was. Sometimes mm-hmm. district judges are not as hot a bench. 
uh, and she really had total command of the case and the record, and she was really using the setting to extract as much information from the advocate. And I sort of feel like I see the same judge um, in, in a similar mode at the Supreme Court. When she's interested in something or when she wants to get to the bottom of an issue, she's not afraid to just hold the floor and, and keep it uh, and, and really push the advocate. I'm wondering if anything stuck out to you in your arguments this term. And I mentioned you had two cases. Was there anything that Justice Jackson asked you that was notable? You know, I think in some ways the most notable thing, and I'm, I noticed it in both of my arguments and then also a little bit more broadly, is she's uh, unabashedly not ashamed of asking about legislative history. Um, mm-hmm. This is something that, you know, the court is more textualist now than maybe it has ever been. And when Justice Scalia was on the court, advocates often were almost scared of, of referencing legislative history, either in their briefs or at oral argument. And I feel like Justice Jackson came in and from the get-go she was very willing to really engage with and asks, ask the advocates to really talk about the legislative history in a way that I think is going to be important, not just at oral argument, but in terms of how people are briefing cases. Because if mm. they know that at least one justice is interested, then people are, are not going to be shy about talking about legislative history. You know, They're going to have to balance that, of course, against other justices who might be less inclined. Uh, but I think that is one thing that stood out to me. Uh, I think it came up in in my argument in the Andy Warhol case, and then in the uh, the Miguel Perez disability rights case. She was very clearly asking, you know, multiple questions about what the legislative history said about the issue at hand. Her first opinion uh, for the court it was an October case. You know, like most most new justices get assigned a case at the beginning. It's usually a unanimous case. It's sort of like a you know, let's get you started kind of opinion assignment. And so it's a technical case. It's important, but it, it's really a, a technical case. And it's a unanimous decision. But it's very interesting that she had a, a section of that decision in which uh, four of the of the more textualist leaning justices did not join. So they voted for her and they joined the rest of the opinion, but they were kind of pointedly not joining that. And that's the kind of section and opinion that if you look at it, you think, she could have probably just omitted it if she had wanted mm-hmm. to and had a perfectly unanimous ruling. But I think she was probably, like maybe at a rural argument, just wanted to make the point that this is a legitimate tool of statutory construction in her view. She kept it in there. She didn't mind that that she lost a few votes on that particular section of the opinion. So I thought that was an interesting data point as well on this point. Yeah, no, that that is really interesting. And it, it sort of um, contrasts with her uh, use of other tools that are more embraced by textualists. And I'm thinking about that voting rights case and her use of originalism there, where she kind of embraced what's more more commonly associated with conservatives to kind of make the liberal case um, in that argument um, using originalism. So it's pretty comfortable everywhere, it seems like. Yeah, we'll have to see whether that was a uh, an embrace of originalism, originalism, mm. or a a sort of way to try to um, to you know point a finger of hypocrisy at the other side of the court. So one thing um, that I think a lot of people, particularly with a live stream, fewer people are going to arguments. I see fewer reporters there. Um, I don't know if you sort of watch things on the live stream more often now than going to um, arguments, but there there is a bit that you miss when that happens. The, the bench is so active, even when they're not, you know, on that mic speaking. There's so much, you know, chitter chatter between the justices and facial expressions. Have you been able to see how Justice Jackson fits in there? I mean, is there any indication that she's getting along with everybody? Or, I mean, I have my impressions, but wondering what yours are. My impression is that um, I think she does, by all accounts, from what I've heard, seem to be getting along with everyone. 
very well. Although, you know, it does make the oral argument a little bit more crowded, given that she has a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. You know, she's very prepared for argument. She's asking good questions. Other justices are picking up on what she's saying and following up. And then the final thing on the arguments is, it's nice, you know, I felt this way with Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett as well when they were the junior justice. But at the end of each advocate's time, they do the questioning in order mm-hmm. of seniority. And so Justice Jackson now is batting, uh, I guess she's batting ninth, but it's, it feels like she's batting cleanup, but she gets to kind of be in an important position mm-hmm. at the end of that line of questioning. And she can sort of either make sort of statements as part of her questions or ask questions that sort of close off the argument. And I think that's a, a strategically a helpful place to be, hmm. to sort of bat last and have the final word, at least from the questioning side of things. One thing I've noticed about her, because I don't have to worry about paying attention to the other justices, but I want to just look at Justice Jackson, is that um, very serious on the bench. You know, oftentimes the justices will make jokes. Sometimes the advocates, you know, you guys make jokes. Um, I don't see her laughing a lot. Um, so that's she's very serious. And as you said, very prepared. So, yeah, she um, knows she is serious, but she's also colloquial and friendly and that is is nice. And, and I think she's a she's she's fun to appear in front of. Mm-hmm. One thing that stood out um, to my family, actually, because I wasn't actually entirely familiar with the phrase, but when I was arguing the uh, Miguel Perez case, um, she used a phrase that I guess uh, a lot of parents use with their kids, which is, you get what you get and you don't get upset. And you get what you get and you don't get upset and you don't get to choose. Um, That's what my daughters sometimes say. um, so, and she had sort of worked that that saying into one of her questions, uh, her, her back and forth with the advocates. And so my kids who listened to the argument thought that was great um, and that resonated with them. But but, you know, she brings a sort of um, colloquial nature. She's not overly formal. Um, and she seems like she's asking questions that she's really interested in getting the answers to. All right. I thought you were going to um, give me a Latin phrase, but OK, you get what you get. You don't get upset. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> uh, that is a, that's a common one in my house, um, although it doesn't work. They do get upset. So um, maybe Justice Jackson can talk to them for me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. My my last question before we let you go is um, what do you expect in the future from Justice Jackson? I mean, more of the same? Is she going to, you know, read all of these articles, listen to this podcast and go, hmm, I should be quiet now? Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> think she's going to be quiet and nor should she. She's she's a justice like all the others. It's too early to say where she's going to end up definitively. But maybe I'll just make sort of three general observations that I think things that I'm looking for. Number one, it seems like so far she's generally aligned where I think folks thought she was going to line up on some of the bigger, more divisive, politically charged cases and probably lining up with Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor on those, we'll have to see. I think it's going to be interesting what persona she takes on in those cases. Is she going to be someone who's going to want to play the flag and be allowed to center in cases where her side is losing? Is she going to be more of a bridge builder, a consensus builder, um, maybe a little bit more like Justice Breyer, who she clerked for and who she replaced? I think that is just too early to tell. I think one thing that is interesting, though, is that We've seen her being pretty active on the so-called shadow docket, you mm-hmm. know, which is basically the court's non-merits decisions and rulings. And so she has been willing to issue a number of dissents from denial of certiorari, dissents from rulings on stay motions. And I think she started to plant a flag a little bit in that area as being someone who's um, in keeping with her own background as a public defender and on the sentencing commission, someone who's interested in criminal law issues in particular. Um, and she's done a couple of opinions in death penalty mm-hmm. cases, in cases raising questions about Brady and 
ineffective assistance of counsel. So I think that that might give some sign. Hmm. I think more generally on the criminal docket, it was interesting to see her teaming up in one case with Justice Gorsuch, uh, where he had mm-hmm. an or Bittner case. And Justice Gorsuch had a lengthy discussion of the rule of lenity. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're going to do a deep dive um, for, for uh, your listeners, the rule of lenity is this principle that ambiguous criminal statutes should be construed in favor of the defendant. And she was the only justice who joined Justice Gorsuch's analysis of that. And that discussion didn't seem to use the language that a lot of the other justices use, saying that the rule of lenity is really something that can only be reserved for really egregiously ambiguous statutes. Right. So I thought that was interesting that her sort of starting to signal on criminal law that um, that she might be confirming what a lot of people said around the time of her confirmation. And then the final thing I'll say, just to get it all out there, uh, but the final <laughs> thing is that we have seen a little bit of an interesting sort of independent streak or, or something that I hadn't ne- wouldn't necessarily have predicted ahead of time. A little bit of independence and a little bit of surprisingness in a couple areas. You know, I thought the pork case, the uh, dormant commerce cause case, was interesting where she split from Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. And she joined mm-hmm. Justice's dissent along with Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh taking a little bit uh, broader view of the Dormant Commerce Clause. You know, that's one of the bigger cases that has been released so far. And the fact that she mm-hmm. was willing to split with the other Democratic-appointed justices, I thought was a sign that, that she's approaching the cases independently. And then the o- only other related point on this is that there have been a number of opinions that have come out where she and Gorsuch seem to be having a, a meeting yeah. of minds on a couple of issues. I mentioned the Bittner Rule of Lenity discussion. Um, there was a case, I think that was released two cases yesterday. Uh, the Polselli case is one where she and Gorsuch teamed up on raising sort of fairness and due process type concerns in the IRS context. They were staking out ground to really protect the, the rights of, of taxpayers and, and emphasize the importance of notice and procedural due process. And then in the Warhol case, she joined Justice Gorsuch's concurrence there too, which mm-hmm. more textualist and sort of made some points independent of Justice Sotomayor's majority opinion. So I wouldn't have necessarily predicted that right. <laughs> teaming up on some of these cases, but that's an interesting dynamic to watch as well. Well, thank you so much for sharing um, your impressions of Justice Jackson. Uh, we'll have you on at like her 10-year anniversary and see and play this back and see if you were all wrong or, or totally right. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, that was really interesting insight from Roman Martinez about Justice Jackson. We'll continue to watch her as opinions roll out. And Lydia, thank you for joining us. It was always such a pleasure to talk to you and I'll have to deal with Greg. Oh, I'm really happy to step in whenever Greg, you know, wants to slack off and and not show up for the podcast. That's what he's doing, I'm sure. Probably like out hanging out with his dog or something. Yeah. Such a... We can't rely on Not really a professional. And you can follow along with all of the latest Supreme Court news on news.bloomberglaw.com. Quack, quack. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C., When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds. 
and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show, On the Merits, and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts. <laughs>